It's been a long time coming, but a change is going to come. Things are playing for change ban. We here at Solutions to Balance, as well as our guest today, Shamika Parrish Wright, also believe a change is going to come. Hi, folks, we are Forward Radio WFMP 106.5 FM. You're listening to Solutions to Balance, a program sponsored by WFMP Radio. I'm Jim Johnson, Jamie McMillan, and I are your hosts for Solutions to Balance. Following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email to solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Shamika Parrish Wright. Shamika Wright is the Community Advocacy and Partnership Manager at The Bail Project. She has worked as a community and voter empowerment organizer, a project manager, and a campaign manager. As a child of an incarcerated parent and a formerly incarcerated person, Herself, Shamika now spends weekends doing art activities with families during visitation with the Louisville Family Justice Advocates Project. Shamika actively serves on several community boards, including the Ann Braden Institute for Social Justice Research Community Council, the Source of Justice Network, and the Homeless Coalition Continuum of Care. Shamika is also co-chair of the Kentucky Alliance Against Racism and Political Repression. She holds a degree in human resources, and all her past positions are directly connected to ending poverty and racist practices. Shamika lives in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome to Solutions to Violence, Shamika Parrish Wright. Thank you for having me. Thank you both for having me here. This is my first time and I'm excited about this. We're excited to have you here and we'd like for you to share with us uh, the major events in your life. What brought you to this place now that so many Louisvans know you? Well, it goes with the theme song that you chose for me and, and it's one of my favorites. A change is going to come. I believe that we can have real change and so I try to make sure everything that I do is tied to ending poverty on whatever level to, to dealing with our current issues and balance. But my community organizing started around Hope Six around the gentrification that was happening. I'm originally from Cincinnati, so River Cities get gentrification the worst. And so I started organizing in my community around informing people what was happening. And and it's not that we're against anything being new, or but the people who are of those communities need to be able to take an active part. So all of my work is is about bringing the missing voices to the decision making table, and making sure that we have good representation of directly impacted leadership. And we don't have that everywhere. And so I feel like we've let things run the same way for hundreds and hundreds of years. And now it's time to have a leadership that understands, that comes from the ground up, that's been there and done that in a way that we can help make the decisions needed. But nothing happens without partnerships. So I'm really good at at bridging gaps between people, building genuine relationships and partnerships and coalition work. So I've been a part of a lot of the coalition around housing action team here. My work with the Kentucky Alliance, the Kentucky Jobs with Justice, Kentuckians for the Commonwealth has all been tied to improving the lives of Louisvillians and Kentuckians. So I see running for mayor as just the next step of coming from behind the curtain to come for a leadership, an executive role, and to bring the missing voices that's missing. So what really happened is that adverse childhood experiences is what got me here. Okay, so Shamika, you are now running for mayor, as you pointed out, here in Louisville, Kentucky. How has your personal story impacted your decision to run for mayor? What is it about your personal story that qualifies you function as mayor of a large metropolitan geopolitical eco-political region? Very good question. I have been connected to a lot of the movers and shakers, the decision makers, and I had to navigate services as a homeless person, as a single mom, as a worker. And so I want to bring, make sure that we have that kind of representation and we haven't had that. So when the mayor's office needed advice, they've called on me. When doctors and lawyers at U of L, U of K um, have needed things done or, or connections to the community, they've called on me. I've been that person that's been behind the scenes doing the work. 
So this is not new to me. I've managed teams. I've raised millions and millions of dollars. I've saved our city with my teams, millions and millions of dollars with my work. I've made sure that I am a part of what moves our city forward. I am on the board of the La Casita Center too. So I've also been engaging with the immigrant population, as well as people who are just poor and, and are struggling to have affordable housing. All of those issues connect to me in a real way. I don't have to make up my community engagement or involvement or decision making. I've been sitting on boards and also being a, playing an active role in the community for a very long time. But people like me are more in the background. We're more of the unsung people choose to help other leadership do it. So I've worked on campaigns and helped other people, but now it's time for us to have the leadership that we deserve which is people who been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and who are ready to take action. All of my jobs have been managing people, volunteer recruitment, community organizing, voter empowerment, engagement. I have been doing that work for over 20 years. And so that is part of that. And then the other part of it, I've worked for Fortune 500 companies. I started a small business here. So I know what it means to go from being homeless to buy a house to, uh, to maintaining and starting a small business to helping my family grow, to watching my husband navigate his job and not have union, not have a union paying job and what that's been like to watch him go through that. So I've been trying to make sure that what I do is on a personal, professional and community level, but also taking it further than that by engaging and involving people from all backgrounds, from Prospect to East Eastern Louisville to West Louisville to South Louisville. All of these people are connected. We have 80 small cities and 22 of them have women mayors. So even me running for mayor is not new for as a woman, but I'm the only woman in this race of 12 candidates. I am the only black woman running. And I don't want people to think I deserve it just because I'm a black woman. I am a woman who's been about change, who Bring, who brings positive energy, who always makes sure that she's transparent, and who wants to bring that to our Louisville metro government. So the issues we have with public health and wellness, the government accountability, community safety, affordable housing, economic development, I'm impacted and connected to those issues on every level. And I've been in those decision-making rooms. I just, I'm just changing roles here. And yes, we are a big metropolitan city that is in our Kentucky, but my hope is not just for Louisville, it's for all of Kentucky. My race has inspired people to want to run for office, to want to do something in their community. And I have connections in Whitesburg I, because of my work across the state. I have connections all over. People who are willing to come here and help me stomp the ground and talk to people and let them know why me as mayor makes the most sense. I have the cleanest slate out of all the candidates that are ready to move forward. Even And I have the proven track record of showing up for the community time and time again. And I have management experience. And I've managed teams both here in Louisville and in Cincinnati. And like I said, have helped save our city over $12 million invested as we've helped to get people who can't afford their bail out of jail since 2018. Almost 4,000 people. And not just Jefferson County, most in Jefferson County, but 28 other counties across Kentucky. Shamika for Mayor is a movement for real change. And, and, and it's interesting that the change is going to come because on my website at shamikaparishright.com, it says changes at the top. And that list under an order based on changes on the things that I propose for our city and ways that we can make our city better. I'm all about bringing those changes in the most inclusive, intergenerational, intercultural, intersectional way. I have the management skills to do so. You were a major leader of the year-long justice for Breonna Taylor movement. It's, it's no secret that you have advocated for change that could impact Louisville's African-American community. As mayor of Louisville Metropolitan Government, talk about some of the changes you want to make that could have a positive impact on West Louisville, the West End of Louisville. Thank you. And as mayor, you have to be the mayor of everyone, right? You don't just get the mayor. I lived in the West End. I lived in Parkland. I lived in Portland. I had my children there. Three of my children were born in the West End. Four of my kids are JCPS graduates. I have two sons that are still in middle school. I'm deeply connected to the West End. And even back when I was living in Parkland, I had Councilwoman Green. I had approached her as a solution to, to some of the balance is to um, ask for mobile trauma response units. These units would be like you see the mammogram buses or the ones that
that come out and show people how they can get on those buses and do all kinds of things and whether it's medical or not. But I want college students, I want trained professionals who are trained in trauma or medical care or even mental health care who can come in and talk to people, not just when something happens, but also when things are good so they can educate and do conflict resolution for people as an alternative to violence. Because I survived gun violence, I survived violence in my community because I had choices. I had faith, I had education, and I had somebody who reached back and said, Shamika, I, I have these other areas and there you have more choices. Our young people still need that. They still need to know that people care about them. And that's not just in the West End, that's every community. But specifically for the West End, there's been a lot of resources and things that have been taken out of the West End. When you take away those resources, it creates the poverty. When you're in boardrooms and you make decisions to close down community centers, libraries, pools, all the activities that kids are used to having or need so that they can have a quality of life, that is actually violent too. That's a form of violence. That, and when you're not dealing with the root causes of why people are getting incarcerated, why they can make poor poverty related decisions, you're not, if you're not dealing with the root causes, you're just exasperating them by just removing some of the band-aids that people have come to depend on. But as a mayor, I think that our city, all the other cities, I told you we have 80 cities, right? And so those cities have their own city government and budgets and things like that. And the West End, nine neighborhoods are under our metro government, which is fine. We have 26 council people who are trying to address the issues. The problem is it feels like everybody is just pulling from the poor into town. It's not just the West End, the South End as well. It, beyond Derby, what, what is being reinvested into those communities? So I have plans to have 24-hour community centers, I have plans to make sure we're talking to workers about having livable wages. We're making sure that people have as many union jobs as they can, union lead, union maintenance, training, jobs, skills, trades, all of those things that we can do to reinforce the people. If we invest back into the people of the community, we'll do better. It's a land grab, right? Everybody wants to buy the land and more than 60% of the people don't even own the land in the West End. Those are owned by people who do not live in the West End. And so that's why it's important to have an opportunities and incentives for people who choose to stay and train young people to be the protection we need. We shouldn't have to call the police unless we absolutely need to. But we have seniors, we have people who are able-bodied who want to be a part of this, we pay them to help us protect those mobile trauma response units, to be a part of, of, of sharing how we deal with conflict resolution, how we have people who are directly impacted leading in those solutions. And so I think the West End to me just needs to be treated as any other neighborhood. What makes the West End different from St. Matthew's is St. Matthew is full of resources. The West End is not. We have to level the playing field and Portland is the same. Portland has a fighting community that is fighting to make sure that it's on the map and it's recognized and Portland is right by the river. So Portland gets a lot more investment on that side because of where it's located. But Portland often gets neglected. Areas of Newburgh gets left out of conversations. When I'm at the doors and I'm talking to people, they're telling me things like on Trevelyan Way, they say, hey, we don't want to reduce our recycle. And um, in the Highlands, they say, we want to deal with the noise. We don't mind the noise, but we want to make sure we could deal with it accordingly. We want to make sure people are respecting our communities. When I go to the West End, they're asking for more 24-hour options, more to get rid of the food deserts, that, to have healthier options for traveling, to have more talk routes, more improved bus stops, broadband, Wi-Fi, to have those things happen in a way that benefits their community. They shouldn't have to lead their community to get the best of the best. And that's the way it is now with the West. If you don't invest in it, then people just leave and come back. We want people to stay. And, and those homes, no homes are built like the ones in the West End. And our utility rates were higher. When I moved from the West End to Newburgh, my utility rates jumped. Well, they actually went down in Newburgh. But in the West End, they were higher. Same with Old Louisville. People were telling me, sometimes I have to go without my electricity for a week. So every community has its own individual issues. What I'm doing is going to them and asking them, what do you need? Because too many families in Louisville have been struggling for so long with houselessness, job insecurity, inadequate health care, access to education, 
low wages and affordable housing to help them navigate through the obstacles. Because we're in a, I feel like we're, COVID is going to be with us for the rest of our lives, but nobody was ready for COVID. And so to move forward, we got to employ new options, new ways to get things done. And I plan to do that for the West End and every end of town. Jamaica Parish, right? You've been announced for a critic of the local Metro Police Department. So if you become mayor, what kind of changes would you make? For starters, would you keep Erica Shields as the chief of police or would you replace her? Part of the reason why I'm running is because Erica Shields was chosen and we had other people who kind of started as beat cops and came up through the ranks to me would have made a better choice to start that healing. When you keep reaching outside of your own box, you got to bring that new person in. They got to get acclimated. They got to understand the lay of the land. They got to develop the relationships and the respect. If we had chose somebody that was ready from our place and that already knew Louisville, that already got the respect of the other officers, we could have just went right to the working on the relationships to heal our city with the police. I almost became a police officer. I don't hate the police. I hate corruption. I hate that our children suffer abuse through our police department. I hate that people died and they shouldn't have died. But I think that bringing in Chief Shields, is it, it plays into that one-dimensional leadership and decision-making that's been happening in Louisville for, so, for far too long. We listen to the grass tops, but we don't talk to the grassroots. And when I asked the committee that really made the decision to recommend her for being hired, I said, what was it about her that stood out? They said, well, she had the best answer when it came to race. Well, I mean, she came from Atlanta. Understandably, she has an understanding of race, but she wasn't what we needed as a solution. And so by the time that my administration takes hold, Chief Shields, she's not the only one. A lot of other people to tell me why they should keep their job. They should be able to show me measurable things that they've done and have that backed up with proven data that they've been able to do these things to benefit our city since they took over. Because right now, we're in a lame duck session for our mayor right now because he can't run again. And, and now everybody's like reaching and trying to find their job and what they're going to do next. People aren't as invested as they was in the heat of the Justice for Breonna Taylor movement. They have a whole different mindset now. People have gotten comfortable and complacent and they're doing these speaking engagements and they're talking the good talk. And now we got all this money coming from the ARP and, uh, and you know all of this funding coming. But when my administration takes hold, most of that funding will be gone and we'll be left with dealing with the symptoms of everything that's left. And, and our administration will be blamed for what didn't work right. So I would be willing to hear Chief Shields out on what she was able to accomplish, what was done. But I will also be looking for somebody who comes from the ranks, who's come up through the ranks, who understands the officers, because officers have things they want to say and things they want to do, and leadership hasn't listened to them either. We've been changing the guard at the top, but we haven't gotten to the root causes of the corruption, the root causes of how this abuse is allowed to happen, the root causes of why people, why officers take that, you know, badge and say they're going to protect and serve, but they treat certain members different, poor white children, people who are struggling in other ways. So LMPD, like our metro government, needs an overhaul. There's only so much a mayor can do. But as far as when it comes to the chief, if she wants to keep her job, she should be able to show me why she should keep it. And then, to be honest with you, I'm going to take it to the people. I'm going to ask the people and, and weigh in on the public opinion if she, if she should keep her job or not. Okay, Shamika, you are the Community Advocacy and Partnership Manager at the Bail Project, which purpose is combating mass incorporation, as we understand it. The project does this by disrupting the money bail system. This program has received a fair amount of criticism in the past year. Please review for our listeners just what is the Bail Project and what is its purpose? So, yes, I work for the Bail Project. We are a national nonprofit with local sites. We were asked to come here to Louisville. I was already in Louisville doing work with the, uh, in the jails. Every weekend, I, like you read with my bio, I was doing art activities in the basement with young people with the special project, now the Louisville Family Justice Advocates. I was approached to apply for this new organization that was coming here to help deal with our overcrowding. Now, mind you, when I started in 2018, our jails were overcrowded, over 2,000 people, and our, our bed capacity is well under that. And so County Attorney Michael Connell, Commonwealth Attorney Tom Wine, 
our former jail director, Mark Bolton, our head of the public defenders, Dan Goyette, great deal of people had already reached out to the Bell Project who was just starting. And so we were the third site. Now we're past 26 sites in, across the nation. But when we started, Louisville, Kentucky was its third site. So there was a lot. We're a new organization. We're a new national nonprofit. We're just over four years old. So when we started here in 2018, our goal was to make sure we help reduce pretrial incarceration. Now, these are people who are innocent until proven guilty. They have been arrested. They have not been convicted. And they're simply in there because they can't afford the bill. And I will tell you, we've paid bills from $25 to $100 to $500 to $250. One woman was accused, allegedly accused of stealing a can of baby formula for $30. She had a six-week-old baby, and when we paid her bill, it was $500. So if she couldn't afford the $30 baby formula, she really couldn't afford the $500. We had a soft cap of $5,000 and as an operations manager. So I came up through the ranks. I started as a bill disruptor. I became a site manager. I became an ops manager, and that, that's when I managed two sites. And then I became, now I'm a partnerships and advocacy. So even as ops managers, because of the civil unrest, because of everything that was going on, we started paying uh, bills up to $10,000. It's not really about, it's about the ability to afford. If you, that woman with the can of milk, whether her bill was $200 or $10,000, she couldn't even afford the $200. So bail is a condition of release. Our Kentucky Constitution says that everyone has a right to the bill. It is a rare, rare circumstance where a judge would would hold somebody without bail. So you know how federal is, they can hold someone out without bail. But our Constitution says that everyone has a right to a bail. So then we have judges that are elected. And it's a very sensitive area. I ran Judge Annie O'Connell's campaign. So I also have helped as a campaign manager, help people get elected. But with judges, the judges get the best view of a person's criminal, legal, or justice involvement, period. They're going to have access to anything they ever done. And and so even with that, they make the decision on what the bill is. We come in after that bill is set to remove that barrier so that they can level the playing field and have a better outcome in court. Because that is the deal. If I'm in jail and I'm incarcerated and maybe I'm in my truck right now, maybe I don't have my insurance in here. And maybe this is my second time, so I could go to jail for that. I go to jail, I get a $250 bond. My public, even my public defender is not going to go to my house and look through my things to find my insurance paperwork. A person incarcerated is going to be their best advocate. If If I'm out of jail, I can go and get my insurance paperwork. When I go back to court, I show all of that, I'm done. That's essentially what happens. People are better, are able to have their outcomes. And even people who feel like, you know, who are going to plead guilty, they want time to be able to take care of their business, prove why they did something, or sometimes people just have a bad night. But with COVID and all the things that came with that, you literally get locked up. Most people become involved in the criminal legal system through traffic stops. So you literally get locked up for a traffic incident, and then you expose to COVID and you can die in jail. We are never meant, jail was never to be meant to be judge, jury, and executioner. And these are people who are innocent until proven guilty, as our Constitution says you are. So we are nonprofit. People donate to us. We don't take money from the government to do this. We don't take tax money to do this. These are people like me and you who say, look, I support this cause. I give so you can help get people out. We don't just bail them out and we don't just do it willy nilly. We don't just take a list and say, pay all their bills. At no given point, do we have enough to pay every bill that's in there? That's just the reality. We have a selected amount of money to use. We want to make the best decision we can. So we get most of our referrals from the public defenders. They give us over 95% of our referrals. When they give us a referral, we put them through our process. And then after they're through our process, we ask the jail, can we interview them? Because of how I told you how people came together to bring us here, we have a working relationship with the jail to be able to interview people daily. So Monday through Friday, we're interviewing those people. Then the bail disruptor can make a decision on, and we ask for references. We ask for references. We ask for their last known address. We do a needs-based assessment. What would stop you from coming back to court? How can we help you? We pay for lift rides. We've helped with emergency shelter. We've helped with cell phones. All of the, the barriers that might not seem like much to me and you, 
are, are a big barrier for people who are struggling with the court system. Once we go through all that process, the bail disruptor makes a decision on whether to pay that bail or not. All of our bail disruptors are trained. Most of them are directly impacted like me. And then they make that decision to make it. Now they can they can approve up to 5,000. Then after that, then it goes to an ops manager, which is what I was. And I can approve up to 10,000. After that, it goes to a regional who can approve up to 20,000. And after that, it goes up to our CEC in our process to make sure that anything we approve there, our CFO, our CEO, everybody, there's more oversight. So we're a national nonprofit. There's naturally checks and balances. We have a board. We have reports. We do everything we can above the board. So we are a national nonprofit that is doing that work. And I am directly impacted by it because in 1995, I was arrested at 18 years old, defending myself in a relationship. He was the son of a sheriff for 29 years. I was a teen mom and the judge never looked at me because I was in a jumpsuit and he was in a suit. And because I was, I looked guilty to the system because I didn't get out. He got the charge with domestic violence. I got a charge, I got charged with assault. And he even came to court and said, judge, I provoked her. I hit her. I did all these horrible things to her. And the judge never looked at me, looked at him and said, I don't care what you did. She shouldn't have did what she did. And I, after 38 days, you all, I gave up. I took a plea deal. And that's what happens every day. You want to know when you're going to get out of that system? You took a, I, So I took a plea deal. And I took a plea deal, got probation, haven't been in trouble since. Well, they arrested me on bogus charges during the Justice for Breonna Taylor movement. But that's it. I've gone on and did great things. That daughter that was three-year-olds then is now 29 years old with her own two kids. But the fact that that still stays with me, if you run my fingerprints right now, because I never got it expunged, when you run my fingerprints, that's what comes up. And that is the decisions that people are making every day. Not necessarily because they're guilty, but because they want to know when they're going to get out of that system. So us paying bail and coming in, we want to make sure we can support those clients when they get out. Some clients, so we've paid almost 4,000 bills, I share with you, but we've gotten three times over 12,000 referrals. So that tells you right there that we're not paying every bail for everybody we get, but we try to make the best informed decision and we're constantly learning. We're a new organization. We're constantly adjusting and learning, but that is the thing. We've paid that, uh, like I said, more than four, uh, around $4,000 in bail, over 12 million. We've gotten more than half of that back. So that means people have gotten out, went to their court cases, the money comes back into our revolving bail fund. We use that one bail to get up to three more people out as it recycles through the system. We only lose the $25, which we consider that an investment to the court system. You have to pay $25 on any bill that you pay. And then that's it. And then we, the, when we're done, we follow them throughout the case. Once they've completed their case, we go on and we continue to get people out. So it's just a revolving bail fund. I said when we opened up day one that we want to work ourselves out of a job. And so we are not trying to be a part of the criminal legal system. We're trying to use the data in a responsible way that we collect from bailing people out to change policy. I just had a meeting with Representative Nemus and Representative Blanton and Frankfurt and just talking to them and they get it. When I got up there, they said, you know what? That's not the bill we want. We don't want to shut you all down. We want to figure out how we can make this work. So House Bill 313 as it stands is one, has some constitutional issues, but two, we did a great job as Kentuckians when we outlawed bail bondsmen. We don't have Donald the Bonnie Hunter to go get somebody when they don't come back to court. We follow up with them, we follow up their family, we pay for lists, we get them back to court in a humane, human rights way. We're not predatory lenders. The families don't owe us anything. We do this because we wanna change the system and we wanna show that if you take a chance on people, more than likely they'll come back to court. And my last piece is when we get people out pre-trial, you have less Louisvillians and less Kentuckians going on to prison. More than 94% of the people we bail out, more than that nationally and even locally, do not go on to prison because they're out. And when you out, you have better offers, you have better outcomes, and you're able to resolve your case. Okay. Uh, you know, I was going to ask you about successes. You mentioned a lot of difficulties, but you've also mentioned a lot of successes, and that's really important. It happened this week. On Tuesday this week, Quintez Brown was charged with attempted murder for firing a gun at the Louisville mayor candidate, Craig Greenberg. At Brown's hearing on Wednesday of the week, this week, his bail was set at $100,000. Quintez is black. On Thursday of this week, a series of text messages were discovered and indicating a white male was, with a firearm, threatening to attack another person. When the police arrived at the location, 
of confrontation, a man was found with a firearm standing outside the residence. A body was found inside the house. The alleged shooter, a white male, was arrested. His bail was $50,000. Here's the situation. It concerns me deeply and I think others as well. I'd like to sort this out for myself and our listeners. Now, the black male fires a weapon at a political figure. No one's hurt. His bail is set at $100,000. The alleged black male shooter is well known. He's a respected high achiever in his studies at UofL. He's an intern for the Louisville Courier Journal. In the same week now, a white male makes threats against another. The person that was threatened is found murdered. The white male accused of the murder is arrested at the scene with the murder weapon and charged with the murder. His bail is set at $50,000. Would you make sense of this for us? What solution do you see that can help us as citizens of this city deal with this kind of violence? The disproportionate bail setting, uh, sentencing, the way people are held is the reason why my organization is around, right? It is um, one of the things that we try to deal with. We, you know, we don't have many of those high profile cases in that way, but even with everyday people back to, you know, we see younger white women and younger white men charged with the same thing as a, as a black brown person or male or female, and they have two different bills, two different outcomes, two different availabilities to get into programs and treatment programs and drug court and mental health um, options. It is, it is a travesty that our justice system is is, is sometimes it seems very unfair. It's unfortunate that we have victims at all. I'm a victim of gun violence and it, it stays with you for the rest of your life. I didn't hear the second one. So thank you for sharing that because even though we as the bail project did not pay the bail for the other situation, as it relates to what you first opened up with, it still shows how our work is has been impactful because you level the playing field when you when you are able to get somebody out who typically wouldn't get out or who gets a higher bill than they can afford. I think that's messed up. I think if you are in a situation in that and someone loses their life, that puts it in a different category anyway, right? And to see that it's the value of life or the price that is put on people's life. I guess because I do this work so much, usually around things around murder and capital murder, you see those bails around $100,000 or above, you know? I remember he, he's a retired judge now, Sean, Judge Delahanty, Sean Delahanty. People really came after him. He had, there was a woman who allegedly blunted her husband or somebody to death and then she got out on home incarceration so she had the ankle monitor and people were paying for him and really some people think that that's why he was unseated and then you have our own state rep you have a state rep last year who allegedly or it might have been 2020 no yeah he allegedly strangled his wife and got a $25,000 bond and was out within an hour he didn't even spend more than an hour in there so it tells you that if they uh, even like when you look at something like House Bill 313, that makes it harder for poorer Kentuckians and, and, than anything else. It's a pay as you go system. And what you see is those things are perpetuated because you already have the injustices based on the race, based on um, over policing, based on the way you can get into the criminal legal system in the first place. And then to add on top of that, most judges don't want to get bad press for their bail setting. And a lot of times they go above what the pretrial services has ranked. That's one of the good things about Kentucky is like we have a statewide pretrial system. Now, I think it needs to be based on needs and it does have some flaws. Judges have admitted it. Prosecutors have admitted it. Criminal defense attorney has admitted it. But it is a system that we have and that we use. And so you have judges who go above that because they want to show that they're tough on crime. But what our society has shown us is that lock them up and throw away the key isn't working either. But to get back to the bail setting, that kind of disproportionate bail setting happens more often than you think. It happens every day. Like I said, if, if we want to say, and I hate the term frequent flyer, but if we want to say who's the frequent flyers of people who go in and out of the criminal legal system, they're young white women and they're young white males. And their bail setting is totally different from other folks a lot of times. And then their access, like I said, is different. And so that is a travesty that we see. And, you know, we bailed out more white people in our bail project work than black. I mean, the, the, the makeup of our city is still 
are still black and brown people are disproportionately represented in our jails and prisons. But even then, our referrals, most of our referrals are for white people. And so we make sure that we try to level the playing field. We go back to the public defenders we say, and, the, and we say, please refer, dig deep and refer all kinds of clients because we see that the people who are disproportionately impacted are not always who we get referrals for, but we get a great deal of referrals every day. So yeah, this is unfortunate. I don't know n- enough about either cases, but just from what you said on its head alone, that is the reason why we do the work that we do. And that's the reason why bail reform, pretrial incarceration, all of that stuff is the hot issue. And it's been like that for the last few years is because people are re- are now waking up. Before, we just, my brother was locked up. We just pulled our money and got him out. You know, we never questioned the bail amount. We never questioned the bail setting. We have groups now like LSERGE, Louisville showing up for racial justice. They're doing court watch and they're doing report cards on these judges and their bail setting and how they're setting it for people and how they're doing arraignments because you don't have that kind of reporting. You know, Citizens for Better Judges, it's more of a like, I know you and lawyers getting together and like, you know, that's more of their peers. You have the community now who is doing their own court watch and they're like, why is this judge setting bails like this for this person? You know, and even with the jail deaths, I know you've heard of the six jail deaths and three of them being overdosed and the jail telling us, oh, it's usually three a year. That's not okay. You're not supposed to die while in custody and one death is too many. But then you've had six in a matter of a couple months. Then that tells me that the jails aren't meant to be our treatment centers. They're not meant to help people detox. They're meant to be that in-between holding while a judge and you go through the pretrial process. And, and so this is an example. So these people can get out. And like, even with the other situation, if you have enough money, you can pay and get out. And that's what this this shows. Yeah, I, I can see the gun violence, of course, and the violence to victims. But there's a, a, other kinds of violence, physical and mental well-being of the victim's family, the, the family of the threatened, the family of the accused. There is the violence against citizens of the neighborhood. And there is violence against the society and the culture and the reputation of the city. Would you explore with us the uh, magnitude of this violence against families and, and the community? Yeah, violence isn't, don't discriminate. Once it happens, it, it permeates every neighborhood, every zip code, every community. You just see reports about it on the news or, or doesn't show every one of those. But if you look at all of the zip codes and you I've gotten a report from interim chief gentry that showed the the amount of calls they get about violence the amount of calls that are substantiated and they're all over Jefferson County I mean if we're talking about just Louisville violence is in every neighborhood in every community it just shows up different mental health issues is in every neighborhood every community substance use issues is in every neighborhood every community so that's why I was saying that a part of if you look at my changes on shamikaparishright.com part of the things that I'm suggesting is having these 24-hour respite centers, maybe two to three of them or four across the county, where the police told me that the living room works. The living room was this place that was set up to be kind of an in-between spot. They didn't have to take you to jail. They take you to the living room and there's trained therapists. It should be 24 hours, fully staffed, livable wages, but have people there who are ready to help get you. Sometimes you might just need to sleep it off. Sometimes it might be just a heated night with the family. You need somewhere to go. Sometimes people really are having a psychosis moment they need somewhere to go because UofL is packed or they don't make it to Louisville, UofL. So they have a bunch of, we don't have enough places to take people. They like it as a as an alternative to take people because balance a lot of times escalate. It can start off as an argument, but then it just blows up because somebody's dealing with other compounded trauma. So we need places that at night and turn into respite centers. And, and then, like I said, having these alternative number to call. So like the Dove Delegates, the deflection program where that's their piloting in Division 4, they're coming up with, and I like this. I thought I was being a genius. I called my friend Kalila and I said, you know what? 911 has been embedded in us that we call 911 if our cat is in a tree, if we see somebody suspicious. Let's set up an alternative number so we can do the marketing campaign and we can train people to have a, a trauma response or a substance use response or we need the police. And she was like, girl, we're already working on it. I said, well, what about 811? You know, it's a whole different number, but but they got already in the state legislature. It's already coming through there. 988 is going to be that alternative trauma response number. They've already started to use that in other jurisdictions. And, and that's going to, to me, make a huge difference. And I know police are against ride-alongs, but having somebody that's trained to deal with trauma 
or a social worker, even if they come in another car, maybe you don't want them in your car, but have another alternative response. And, and that's what those mobile trauma response units that I propose, that can be a part of that. All these things can be connected to give people the direct services that they need. Those are really good solutions. And I appreciate you bringing those to our attention. Shamika, you mentioned the fact that you were a victim of gun violence. There's an article that was published by Wave TV News, quote, Louisville ends 2021 with record year of homicides, end quote, documents 188 homicides in Louisville and Metro Louisville, yet another record. So far, 2022 is on track to break that gun violence takes our youth and destroy families. What's your strategy for diminishing the number of homicides and the serious injuries as a result of gun violence here in Louisville? sound like a broken record to say the root causes, but everything you all asked me about in the beginning, if they're dealt with properly, they can reduce gun violence. If you have mental health needs that are not getting met, then you're susceptible. But for the families, like we had over 528 shootings last year, gun violence related charges that were non-fatal and over 123 of those were children. And we got to make a decision as a community. I want to set up points of unity with our young people. I'm going to have celebrities and local business and we all come together and we develop a point of unity it's kind of like the unspoken rules that we've we've been taught but also adding to that as it relates to violence conflict resolution training and, and trauma and how we handle that even at injustice square we had we had rules there of basic rules of you know it takes and how we approach problems and conflict as it arrives we can't assume that everybody has our skills if somebody comes up to you jim or you james you pretty much, if they just start talking crazy, you know what to do. And our young people aren't given those tools like before. We don't have necessarily the grandmas and the grandpas sitting down with them and saying, hey, here's how you handle this given situation. So I think we need to come up with points of unity that they take an oath and we all take an oath to sign up to, to mitigate some of this need to always go to balance. It shouldn't go to zero to 60. You shouldn't shoot up a bus stop. That's unheard of. And I came from over the Rhine and it was pretty rough. And and I saw people die. I was robbed. I saw all of these things, but I never saw somebody shoot, shoot up a bus stop. And you don't shoot up a church. You don't go in the McDonald's and just, oh, like these rules that we talk about, we took a vow of nonviolence. I have. We need to teach that to our young people. And we need to have people in the community helping lead. So before we call the police, I've stopped people from killing themselves. I've stopped people from going over to somebody's house with a gun. We've done that in every neighborhood. There's somebody like us in every neighborhood who's stopping violence. How can we elevate them? Not just make them ambassadors, but how can we elevate them? And if they want to pay position, how can we help them? Have them help part in that community protection that I talk about. A lot of the youth, they carry guns because they feel unsafe. That is why they're carrying them and they may not be trained. We have to have gun responsibility. Our gun laws are what's killing us, you all. We have the most lax gun laws and people don't understand those laws. And so somebody can open, oh, we can open carry. They have a gun and they don't have it properly, you know, hosted or anything. They haven't went through training. Something happens, they shoot their own self in the foot. I know that most of these youth want to. They just want to know that they're heard and they're protected. I know this from living at Hemlock and Southern and Parkland. My daughters looked out their window and saw somebody robbed with a shotgun. And they called me and they said, Mom, this guy's getting robbed with a shotgun. I had to tell them, don't go outside, just stay in there. And then one time we were on our way to vacation in Florida and somebody shot out my window. I come outside and I call the police so I can do a police report because my insurance wanted one. But while I'm waiting for them to come, when the police left, this young man comes over. His hand is bandaged up. It's like bleeding through. And he looks at me. He says, I'm so Sorry, Ms. Shamika, I know who you are in this community and, and tried to give me $200 to help repair my window. And he said, I'm sorry they were trying to rob me and I shut out your window. He didn't have to do that. We cannot think that everybody's coming from this bad sunken place when they're trying to have the safety and the community protection that they don't feel like they have. They don't feel safe in their community. So even people who, who have records choose to carry weapons and and then they take new charges because they're not supposed to have those weapons. So we got to have more programs that I believe in restorative justice. I believe in expanding and supporting, fully supporting that, opening up more living rooms and having more 24-hour community centers across the place, giving our youth something to do, keeping them working 24 hours a day if they not, you know, that's breaking all time, child labor laws, but connecting them to jobs year round, not just in the summer, making sure that we don't lay out police officers, we don't lay off librarians, we don't close schools, we don't close those activities. And for our seniors, making sure that they have a safe pathways, they can have youth escorting them to grocery stores and 
and they we got to have them talking to each other and not fearing each other and then like i said setting up the points of unity i'm already talking to some former U of L and and professional basketball stars and football stars because they'll hear them they'll hear them in a way they would never hear me asking them because they're pulling up in their lamborghini and i'm in this truck telling them hey you can have a good life and you become a community organizer and they're like no here's how i made it out the hood they're gonna listen to them more than me so i want to have them at the table with us approaching all these youth giving them studio time places to express their art so this engages arts and culture it engages tourism having two-week derby sessions where we bring all these people here but not every community benefits from those derby dollars why don't we have activities all over the county so we all can benefit from the money coming in from derby and not just certain communities of town when we spread out the wealth and the resources and the access and also expand on arts and culture we create a better city that people want to act right and the last thing i'm going to tell you i want to do a light up the alleyways you need louisville has a unique design where most of the streets have alleyways especially downtown and so i want them to be led solar powered making sure that we clean those alleyways because nobody wants to do dirt in in a clean well-lit place that is taken care of if it deters crime we got to do more things that deter crime light deters crime but the communities would would say hey because you know it does change the back of your house if you got a light coming on in the middle you know once somebody because they'll have motion sensors and just making a real commitment to taking care of the communities we live in the reason why that young man came to me is because when i moved in that house it was hypodermic needles in the brick pillars and me and my nephew cleaned them out and we replaced them with like uh, we put some mums in each one of them and now a couple people stole our mums but they stopped putting those needles in those pillars because they saw that we cared about it and the next thing i did was put a library a little small library i, I got on the list for little libraries and put that there and guess what the library became a trading post not for drugs but for extra supplies people put books in there people put new things they had shoes and people would just go in and out that library so those kids were paying attention to that and it made them say they really care about this neighborhood and that happened so and and, and the last thing is our main library on virginia had closed whenever you have a library closed a community center closed and a pool closed you see those crime rates change there's a direct relation to that we got to keep them busy we got to give them options and we have to come up with a unified points of unity that we all agree to as a first step as we're dealing with our conflict resolution jamaica gun violence is the leading cause of premature death in the U.S., killing more than 38,000 people and causing 85,000 injuries every year. The United States has had more mass shootings than the next size 10 nations combined. As documented by the Center for Health Progress in their article, USA has a gun violence problem. They state this, 64% of registered voters said in the morning consult Politico tracking poll that was released Wednesday, yesterday, February 17, 2022, they reported that strict gun control laws in the United States, while 28% said they were opposed to tougher legislation, that article was published in, did that make sense? I've heard it before and I read it um, when you gave me a heads up about it. My answer is, is that as mayor, you know, executive role, there's there's ways that I can influence that and have our lobbyists working in Frankfurt to make sure that we're doing what's best for our Jefferson County. Two, we recommission a lot of guns that are taken off the street. So the police are saying, yeah, we're taking all these guns off the street. But what happens is they take the guns off the street, they send them upstate, they get recommissioned, they get sold back to the pawn shops and the gun dealers. And a lot of times, unfortunately, those gun dealers and pawn shop owners have young children who are, are young adults who get caught up on opioids and, and other drugs. And then guess what they do? Guns have the highest resale value. So I want to do gun buybacks in a, in a real genuine way. I'm not going to give you $25 for a gun that you can sell on Twitter or, or on Snapchat or something for $400. We have to have real gun buybacks that are mean meaningful so people feel comfortable selling those guns back. There's more guns out there than we expect. I did some work with Source of Justice Network right when um, the NRA came in town and I just started doing some randoms, not random because I was contracted to do this work around gun violence. I started doing surveys with young people as well as our seniors and, and people who are under 50 and I found out that most of those folks had two to three guns in their household. When I asked those kids, you know, how many guns they thought were in their community, they would say like Miss Shamika, I think 100,000. Miss Jamaica, I think 20,000. It blew me away. And when I would talk to some older people, like my older girlfriends or, or people who have empty nests, they told me they had three guns and one on layaway. We do have a problem with guns. 
But that's what I'm saying. Like people feel like if I can't get the protection I need, I'm going to have it for myself. And I have a model. People are telling me now I need to carry a gun. They're telling me that now. And I just saw on Twitter where somebody was like, I watched Shamika. I'm in a parking lot now having a call with you. And they said, I watched Shamika get on the Terry Minor show. I videotaped her for three hours. And now people are like, Shamika, with the with everything that's happening, you got to take your security. But I have, I'm a gun violence victim. I pride myself on staying away from guns. But my husband, he's licensed to conceal carry. He bought a gun for me. We, he, he, I had to let him beef up the security because I got death, th death threats during the Justice for Breonna Taylor movement. And I still don't carry a gun. But that's because I saw it and I saw my friends die. And I just, and I experienced it that I, I just don't want to live by it. So we have to have people who are making conscious choices to not carry, to not use, or to be responsible gun owners, to be properly trained, to use gun locks. We lost Luther Brown, who was providing all these gun locks. We got to have people who are going to come together in partnership with businesses and organizations to do real meaningful gun buybacks that gets them more. Maybe they want a new computer or maybe they want, we can make it happen. And I will be out there in the forefront, making sure that we do this in a real way that makes sense. Let's change directions here, Samika. We don't have a lot of time. But, uh, Kentucky House Bill 321 is a bill that will match private investor money with state money. It is designed to help startup businesses owned by African-Americans in Louisville's West End. It will provide incremental revenue tax incentives to West End Opportunities Partnership and income tax credit for certain residents. So HB 321 has been signed by Governor Bashir and was originally sponsored by Morgan McGarvey, Annika Scott, Lisa Wilner. But some objected because they say more Black leadership should have been involved. Others believe that many of the new businesses that are startup businesses in Louisville's West End receive that funding. They're actually owned by people from out of town, not people from Louisville West End. So what's your take on 321? What's, what else needs to be done to help increase a Black ownership of Louisville businesses? It's not going to happen if folks can't connect to it. If we're having meetings and we're building above and around them, it's not going to happen. I signed a petition that was started by people who are working with residents to say, hey, we want to ask questions. Now, I'm not against business. Like I said, I'm a small business owner. I want to see more that spread out. I want to see more equity and funding. And then we have a, something that's going to be implemented over 20 years. You all know what COVID has shown us, what the tornadoes in, in Western Kentucky, all of that stuff has shown us is that we don't have the time we think we have to get things right. So we need to put in the work at the forefront to make, make sure that the right people are there. My issue of si why I signed that petition that was against it is because there was wasn't enough clarity. There wasn't enough people who were directly from the West End that looked like they were going to benefit. And the decision-making board hadn't, hadn't even been set up. So I have been attending those meetings. I know Senator Jared Neal and all and, and some other folks, even one of my, my colleagues that's running for mayor, um, Greenberg, they, had, they have hands in this. But my thing is, here's another thing that comes. And yes, it saves people, but where is the, the real track to affordable home, home ownership? Where is the real track? Most of the people in the West End are renters. I know. I rented in the West End several times. Most of them are on affordable housing. Where's the real pathway for them to gainfully get the housing that they need? And then we got a lot of slumlords already. I don't want a slumlord benefiting from this, this tax opportunity. Why should they benefit when when you have too many people across Louisville living in substandard housing. It's not quality housing. It's just barely enough lead. And I had a mushroom growing while I was on Section 8 at 24th and Jefferson. I had a mushroom growing from my ceiling. And it just took forever for them to even try to fix that. I'm not okay with keep patting the bear and patting the bear and not dealing with the core issues. It's something that needs to be really drawn back to the drawing board. I've heard about it working in some other places, but we cannot cookie cutter anything for Louisville and especially West Louisville. We have to have the residents involved at every level. I see now that they're taking applications and they're in the selection process to have a representative from each one of the nine neighborhoods. I support that. And when I attend the meetings, I say the same things I say to you. It needs to be more transparency. People want something shiny and new in their neighborhood. They just want to know that they have a part and a say in what happens next, that they can enjoy it, that they can benefit from it. Any neighborhood we're in, if something's coming in, there should be a community neighborhood agreement so the neighborhood can have a one pager. You should be able to know how this is going to benefit me. And I bet your bottom dollar, if we were all together and we rolled to the West End right now and we said, oh, let's just pull over and ask the random person, what is the West, uh, West End opportunity tax incentive. 
I bet you most of them will be like, what? I might have heard about it. I don't know about it. How does it benefit you? I don't know that it benefits me, you know? So that is the problem. We have had too much of that kind of one-dimensional thinking and leadership. I think with Governor Bashir and the others had a good frame of mind when they thought about this. But I think that if it's not done right, 20 years is another way to set us back. Look at the 18th Street Corridor at Broadway and 18th. I was in meetings 20 years ago about that space. And look what happens. Too many times the people in these other communities are let down by failed projects and failed policies. We've had enough failed policies. We have to right some wrongs and bring more people to the table to be inclusive. We don't want to just be staring at an eyesore at 18th and Broadway, but somebody in Florida is benefiting from the tax opportunity. A Kurt Journal article penned by John Hayes, Gibbons, LaGlinda Breed, Don Turner, Michael Bracely, and Gregory D. Squires states, quote, Lancet, the world's leading medical journal, research conducted by our team showed Louisville ranked sick at worst for deadly toxic air compared to 146 mid-sized U.S. cities, end quote. Rubber Town is not the only community environmental issue facing Louisville. Jackie Green, the perennial mayoral candidate, wants to build vertical parking lots, a light rail system, developing plans to replace a surface parking parking lot with Lowell's car-free residential complex, establish easy access to bus lines, government subsidizing acquisition to solar cells, and other fundamental changes. What's your priority in terms of taking on the issue of global warming as well as other environmental concerns? Appreciate that question. Thank you, because most people don't ask about what we're going to do about climate change. As a mayor, there's some direct things we can do. I know people joke about the bike lanes, but we got to have more walkable destinations. I've met with Jackie Green. I don't know why he jumped on the other side, but we totally agree on light rail, reducing heat islands, making the bus stops more viable, right? To, right now, to ride the bus is a is a direct determinant of your class, right? You should want to leave your car at home and get on the bus. How about we have farmers markets at major stops and intersections? Reasons to ride it and connect it to the arts and culture around the city. That will make me ride the bus more. But the reality is because transporting across the city takes so much, I can't even imagine leaving my car home and getting everything done that I want to get done. Two, um, there is a plan that it was like TP3 or TP2 over 20 years ago, the federal government said, hey, Louisville, do you want to, you can have this money to work on bridges or you can have this money to work on light rail. We chose bridges. It's time to choose light rail now. Our Muhammad Ali airport is already set up to receive light rail. I was just, I'm out here on popular level now, and I was just at GE meeting with their union and telling them that I want to keep businesses like them in town. And if we had a light rail, it can stop there and stop at all the major employers to make sure that we get people across town in the most effective way. And people have more ways to leave. We need to keep businesses here that are good, and we need to have a climate change project every year, and that's what I plan to have. Four-year term, I want every year we want something that directly attacks climate change, and we do that by making sure that we have designated parking areas with designated walking areas. If we just have parking lots that are just sitting empty most of the time, we need to put farmers markets, other options there that can be there, playgrounds, more greenery, make our city more walkable, and I did have that in Cincinnati. I want to see that here and Louisville's big enough to do, be able to do that. And also, I grew up at Finley Market. You know, I love Logan Market, expanding that so we have more fresh and open markets around town. And then also making sure our youth have a part in what our, our plans are for climate change. I plan to have youth a part of my transition team as well as my accountability team because most people run on one thing and then they actually do less than 20% of that. Even with the presidents, they've done 18% or less of what they ran on. I want accountability team that's going to make sure that I keep going, the neighborhood voices, the community voices right there, and then we're checking in every month. We're talking about what's working, we're, we're getting rid of what's not working, and we're making those decisions together. And so I definitely will have the youth a part of climate. They got great ideas on how we can reduce our carbon footprint. I um I take their endorsement very, very, it means much to me because I feel like we need to be leaving them something. I want all of our legacies to be that we took action. We're all activists for climate change change right now. And yes, definitely aligned. I did the tour with Jackie. I did some Sunrise Louisville has supported me. I've done some other work around making sure that I'm hearing the youth on what their needs are. 
they they're with us. They want to reduce what's happening. And I think with COVID and what's already happened, the time is now for it. We can't wait to 2040 for our climate change plan. We have to have one every year that's significantly addressing what we can do in Louisville. And the way that we do that is through solar power, through green jobs, and that creates more opportunity. And we connect it to the businesses that are worth keeping and help support them and lift them up. And the last thing is light rail will connect our cities. We don't have much that connect our city, 80 cities, and we're not really connected. That is another way that we're connected. So light rail is a bigger project, but I think that's what we need, you all, to bring more healing, especially after the civil unrest. We need something that we're like, this is our big thing that we're we're going to make happen. Now, I know I got to go through a bunch of regulations. Since some of our roads are city-owned, some of them are state-owned, so we have a lot of things to navigate, but we, I'm willing to do that and willing to roll up my sleeves. I've been at planning meetings to three in the morning, city planning meetings. I'll do it again because I think that there's more places that we need than not. And also making sure recycle is real, like it's making a real difference. Recycle products, repurpose items, you know, old bathtubs can be cut in half to make park benches, you know, and paint it like projects around the, the city. They got the tricked out on trash cans that Mighty Shades of Ebony are doing. There's a lot of people doing some amazing things, and I'm I'm willing to partner up. One mayor doesn't do any of these things, reduce balance, improve climate, climate options. They don't do it by themselves. They do it in partnership. So I would have people like you and everyone else, including our business and faith communities. Faith communities have these churches. They could be repurposed. People can have more places to live. We can buy old hotels to get people off the street. Hotels are set up as the best place to have individual living, but we'll have some programs out of that. I'm definitely behind um, Hope Village. I've been there from the beginning of that project. So I'm really, really connected to a lot of these things because I want a future for our kids. I have six kids, three grandkids. This I take this very, very serious. The Reverend Tim Finley, Dollar Beckett, Wardick, Craig Greenberg, Colin Harden, uh, Sergio, Alexander Lopez, David Nicholson, all have declared their candidacy for mayor. Why are you the better candidate? Well, first of all, I was first. I was the first to announce my intentions. I threw the whole game off. I announced in January of 2021 while in Atlanta door knocking for war knocking off, just reducing the power of what's going on in DC. But I know that I'm the best one. I told them, and they think that I'm joking, I would appoint and hire most of them to work with my administration. I think that I need to be the mayor to show the best move forward. The boldest, most progressive move forward is having me as mayor. And I will help bring them to the table and make the best decisions because I'm not doing, it's not about ego for me. It's not about another notch on my resume. It's about really getting in there and having a people's agenda and addressing what makes our Louisvillians lives better. What makes, we don't have that. We don't have a sense of comfort anymore. I want us to walk in our doors and feel like, you know what, this, this Metro government, this administration really cares. And I want to start with the workers first. I'm going to start with the Metro government employees first. I'm going to start with the TARC workers. I'm going to start with all our major businesses and opportunities to let them know, one, we care about you and that's how you have a thriving city i'm ready to bring our whole city forward not just the west end not just the south the east there's people in the east end who are house poor i knock on their door and they tell me they don't have utilities and haven't had them in months but they're making enough to pay their mortgage that that's a real reality we think that all the poor stuff is just happening downtown it's not and um with too much we only care about our downtown yeah a downtown needs to thrive a, a city needs to run like a business i agree with that but what i'm talking about is bringing the people's needs to the mayor's office. I'm not going to stop the business that's happening. I'm not going to stop Derby. I'm not going to stop Whiskey Row. But what I can do is use that office to, to, to make sure people's needs are met. And that is what we haven't had. We've only had business mayors. And, and that's what really, when I researched mayorship, it was set up for rich white businessmen to usher in their French contracts, that the requirements to be mayor are minimal. You can just live, you can be 24, live where you serving, make sure you're a registered voter, but we would never have somebody 24 in office. So I want to inspire more people to run. I want to show them how to get it done in a very real way. But people like us don't win because people think that DC seats are just bought and sold. What I'm doing is making sure people understand people power, that vote matters. We had a, a representative that won by one vote in Kentucky. They recounted and recounted, but that one vote got him that victory. He, he lost his re-election, but he won that election. I just talked to someone who told me she lost in Shelbyville over 33 votes. The votes is what's matter, what matters. I'm bringing millionaires lose 
election cycles every time. We got to make sure we're focused on the people. That million dollars does not guarantee a million voters. We got it. And I, what I have is a movement behind me. People from all backgrounds, the most diverse um, team, and the, I'm going to have the most diverse administration. And I'm about not leaving anybody out. So our immigrants, our seniors, our young people, our workers, our medical folks, our public health, everybody's going to be engaged at every level. But thank you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are again out of time. Shamika Parrish-Wright, a 2022 Louisville mayoral candidate, has been our guest today. Thank you, Shamika. It has been our pleasure to have you join us today with your Solutions to Violence. Thank you. Solutions to Violence program airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Our interview featuring Shamika Parrish-Wright airs again March 1st and 2nd. To listen live stream, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on Listen live now. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Shamika Parrish-Wright will be placed in our WFMP archive March 2nd, 2022. And you can tune in and find it there. To visit our archives, go to Forward Radio website at forwardradio.org. Choose Program Archives. Then, excuse me, then select the Solutions to Violence program that features Shamika Parrish-Wright. So I'm Jim Johnson. Jimmy McMillan and I are your hosts for Solutions to Balance. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. We want to thank you for listening. Uh, before we leave you today, we want to take this opportunity to invite other candidates that have filed to run for Louisville mayor in 2022 election cycle. To appear on our program, Solutions to Balance is happy to feature you as our guest. Just contact us at solutionsofbalance18.com. Folks, thanks for listening. Please tune in again.